Ari Rosenbaum here with the 200th episode of that 4 k podcast. 200 episodes, which means we've been around since 2018. Uh, I think we started it the summer of 2018, uh, right before the Cleveland event in September 2018. But anyway, um, no, I, I, I think I got that completely wrong. 2018 at 40 years, I don't know. Forget it. Forget I said anything about it. Um, but anyway, uh, probably 2019. Yeah, the Cleveland event. That's 2019. But anyway, um, welcome to this episode of that 401k podcast. This week's topic, we're going to talk about great 401k participant features that can give, um, can cause uh, plan sponsor headaches. Um, just really, you know, some of the, uh, compliance issues that I find with, um, you know, features within a 401k plan. But of course, first things first, that 401kstake.com for further information on all our live events. Seattle, September the 9th. Charlotte, November the 18th. Um, great, uh, great events. Uh, we finally, uh, I'll finally be in Charlotte without just being a stop at the airport. Been in Charlotte twice. I've only seen the airport. Um, so uh, we will be at Bank of America Stadium. But of course, first thing, we will be at T-Mobile Park in Seattle on September the 9th. Uh, Friday, September 9th. Looking forward to that event. And uh, great, uh, you know, four or five hours of contact, stadium tour, ball game. Um, Charlotte, we're not going to have a ball game, football game. We're not going to be there on a Sunday. Sorry. Uh, can't afford NFL tickets to give those away for free. But we will be in Charlotte uh, at the home of the Carolina Panthers. Looking forward to that event. And again, 100 bucks gets you in. Uh, as Mad Magazine would say, that's cheap. Um, but of course, let's talk about 401k features that cause headaches. Um, you know, in terms of headaches, I always remember the line in the movie Back to School where um, Thornton Mellon, played by Rodney Dangerfield, was talking about his wife, Vanessa, played by the immortal Adrian Barbeau, who... Um, you know, as a kid, uh, wow, Agent Barbeau, Cannonball Run, Maud. Uh, I just looked. I think she's 75 years old now. It's, it's crazy. But then again, I'm 50. So, um, But anyway, when he was talking about Vanessa, his second wife, his first wife died. And I think he was telling um, his driver, chauffeur, played by Burt Young, you know, Vanessa, she gives good headache. And there are a lot of 401k features. You know, again... Plan sponsor comes in with the best of intentions, and then, um, unfortunately, uh, life uh, you know comes into play. Um, within a 401k plan, some options again are really beneficial, but they could cause a tremendous amount of headache. And number one is automatic enrollment. I'm one of the big fans of automatic enrollment uh, since it was added to the code in 2006, and I, I I've told you know lot on my dislike of automatic enrollment when it was called when it was called negative a uh, negative election I'm sorry negative election I think that came out in 99 or 98 um, I think it was dealing with a fast food restaurant where again they asked for an IRS ruling which the IRS allowed negative election uh, where again you could withhold participant paychecks up to three percent. 
the reason I didn't like it, I, I said, "Oh my God, this is out of the, this is you know this is out of, this is out of this is communism. This is out of the Soviet Union." The reason I disliked automatic enrollment when it was called negative election so much was the money would get parked in a money market account or stable value because there was no fiduciary protection. Now, again, um, I've always said that I can change my opinions. Um, so when automatic enrollment was codified into the Internal Revenue Code, part of, part of, part of the law, uh, the addition of the QDIA um, was, was the big deal for me. That was the, the big break. And of course, uh, I've told it a thousand times, I worked for producing TPA, and it was finally added to the law. I sent them an email to my bosses and some of the people out there, uh, you know, that I think is producing TPA with an RIA practice, we should be promoting this. And like I said, it's 2006, I sent the email, it's 2022, I still haven't heard back from them. But then again, I still haven't heard back from the uh, wait list uh, from Boston University School of Law, um, even after I got a tax LLM degree there too. But again, um, I like automatic enrollment because it gets people to defer. Uh, plan sponsors do like it because it may help goose up the ADP rate group of the non-highly compensated employees. Uh, the problem with automatic enrollment, it really could blow up in a plan sponsor's face when they fall, when they when they fail to uh, implement it uh, and don't take out the deferrals paychecks as mandated by the plan document. If you don't fix it, uh, you know you may have to give corrective contributions. Uh, there's nothing worse to me making a corrective contribution instead of the participant making the salary deferral contributions on an automatic enrollment feature. So automatic enrollment, the problems to me, it's the same thing as the missed deferral opportunity. It's just a, a mistake that's uh, going to happen. It happens too often. And that's to me the big uh, kicker on automatic enrollment. Now, I had my buddy, Rich Larita, who I worked for, you know, worked with him at two different TPAs. Rich Larita was always against automatic enrollment. He's like, you know, uh, people are going to knock on the HR director's door complaining that money's withheld from their paycheck. And I said, Rich, at 3%, nobody's going to notice it. And while Rich and I were very, very opinionated employees, which, you know, Employers don't like that. <laughs> Turds in the punch bowl, they don't like. So Rich Larita and I were people who had very opinionated. Uh, yeah, I think we would notice it 3% uh, if it was withheld from our paycheck, but most employees wouldn't. And for those who wouldn't, uh, who, I'm sorry, for those who did know, uh, people are passive aggressive. Um, again, uh, at that certain TPA, People didn't say boo, um, you know, when, when uh, things happened and our retirement plan got worse and worse, our health insurance coverage got worse and the premiums went up and they kept on switching providers. You went from Oxford to Blue Cross, Blue Cross to this. And I think thankfully by that time, and, and well, it, it didn't affect me in 2003, I got married, then I was on city health insurance, which was a lot better. But employees are not. Employees like to complain privately. They don't like to complain publicly to their bosses, so they're passive-aggressive. And, and again, um, I think a lot of employees who enroll in automatic enrollment don't notice it. And if they do notice it, 
um, they're not going to complain to their employer because they just that's it's easier to complain privately than write to people's faces. Another feature that can cause good headache uh, is matching contributions. I uh, obviously love matching contributions. I think it's a great uh, enticement for people to defer. Uh, people call it free money for deferring, but obviously it's a great you know kick in the rear end for participants to act to participate by deferring their salary. Again, you, you defer, you get it. You don't defer, you don't get it. The problem, obviously, what the bane of my the bane of existence, whatever. The, one of my biggest complaints about match, match contributions is how employers do it, uh, as well as what's in the plan document. I think the easiest thing for me, keep it simple, stupid, kiss, the, the feature, you know, the, the, the mantra that I live by. Um, I think that uh, if employers funded it on an annual basis, that would probably be the best, less, less headache. Uh, the problem with match contributions is obviously based on the type, time of funding and any caps. Um, you know, there's a limit. You know, usually in the plain document, limit, you know, the maximum they'll want to match. And it's limited to percentage of deferrals. So the problem, again, is how you use the cap. Are you using a payroll period cap or an annual period cap? So if you're using a payroll period cap, where I'm only going to defer, let's say, 50% up to 4% of payroll period compensation, that means in English, I should, uh, as an employer fund the contributions on that method. Same thing if I use an annual cap, then I should fund on that method. The problem is, is that a lot of plan sponsors don't do that. They'll have a uh, payroll period comp cap, and then they will do an annual um, contribution. And that creates a whole list of headaches and true-ups and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's got to be consistent uh, because... What people don't realize, especially plan sponsors don't realize, is that people as participants do change their deferrals all the time. I remember I remember when I first got into a 401k plan. Uh, that was the law firm that was associated with CBiz Retirement Services, Inc., uh, Berman, Sussman, and Forsetter. And I had to cut back on my deferrals because... That quirk, prior to 2002, uh, the deductibility uh, of 401k plans, the limit was 15% of comp, um, which was a problem when um, that comp limit included salary deferrals. So I had to cut back for that. Um, and so I did change. Um, get married and you want to save more money, you change that as well. So, you know, uh, plan participants are not are fluid when it comes to deferral changes. They don't have one deferral change and just, you know, fix it. Um, we <laughs> a situation with my wife last week. Uh, I would say it was quite the tensest, but uh, I, I think if people leave, uh, listen to the podcast, my wife was changing jobs and she knew for the last two paychecks she was leaving. So she said, okay, I, my new place, there's a six-month wait for deferrals. I want to try to max out. I said, okay, try to max out. I thought she was going to change her deferral percentage to 30-something percent from 25. She, of course, increased it to 50. Needless to say, she was surprised that her last paycheck was zero. 
Um, so that was that was quite the tensest. And if I recall correctly, that employer did have a profit sharing or may not have profit sharing. Actually, I don't think they had a profit sharing. So uh, we submitted her rollover paperwork just recently, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, the employer before that, there were some issues on her getting her pay. Her, 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 there was a, there was a whole issue with missing. They, they claimed she was a missing participant. One of the payroll, uh, I'm sorry, one of those IRA providers sent her an email. Oh, we have your money. And my, my wife's like, the employer knew all along where I was. I haven't changed my address in 18 years. Whatever. But anyway, uh, again, I, I think matching contributions, you know, in English, the plan sponsor should merely match by the way they put in a match limit. And it needs to be consistent. Uh, and again, one thing about matching contributions that the IRS certainly wants to see is some sort of documentation, plain document of the formula, or some sort of declaration. The days where it was completely discretionary and no announcement for the plan sponsor, those days are over. Uh, plan sponsors need to be on point and exactly tell plan uh, participants how much the match contribution will be. Another great plan participant feature that's debatable whether it's a great plan participant feature. Uh, that's participant direction investment. Um, again, uh, I'm very good at investing my own money. Most plan participants are not. Uh, you know, again, allowing participants to direct their investments when their 401k plan was done to supposedly limit the liabilities plan sponsor. The problem is most plan sponsors weren't aware that they had any duties on the risk of 404c. They thought, you know, like my old law firm. I give these people. I don't. I, I don't. You know, review funds for ten years. I give these folks, who are my plan participants, um, warning star profiles, and, and, and I'm and I'm free from liability. But that's not reality. Reality is a fiduciary process on the risk of four four C. You know, basically, a process to make sure that plan participants have informed investment decisions, and uh, there must be a process to select and replace plan investments. Um, you also need to provide enough information, you know, uh, again, for plant participants to make informed investment decisions. And if, you know, plant sponsor doesn't follow a, uh, a diligent fiduciary process, they will end, end up being liable. You know, it's, it's, it's not a suicide pact. It's not a be-all, end-all. Um, protection on the 404C is a sliding scale. It's based on what a plan sponsor will do. Plan sponsor does nothing, they will get no protection whatsoever. If plan sponsor hires an ERISA 338 investment fiduciary or 321 and their investment fiduciary is diligent, uh, then they will probably get the, ma the maximum protection. Uh, next, loans. Uh, you know, on paper, allowing participant loans is one of the beneficial plan participant features because it allows them um, to uh, get the money out when they need money. Um, I think my I had one of my parents took out a 401k loan years ago to, to buy a house. Um, you know, there's that maximum five-year term, and the payment has to be quarterly. Otherwise, the loan will default, and the plan participant is supposed to get a 1099 representing a taxable deemed distribution. In terms of plan errors, uh, plan loans to me are always on top of the list because it really involves 
the plan sponsor forgetting that a participant defaulted and there's a deemed distribution and the default could be the reason the plan participant not making contributions or most of the time an error on the plan sponsor. Uh, and I think, you know, again, to keep loans um, free of errors, I always recommend only one loan outstanding at a time and a minimum loan of $1,000. Uh, especially when a, a loan fee could be as much as 150 bucks for a plan participant, uh, a plan sponsor should not be a uh, check cashing place, in term or a uh, or you know uh, what you call it uh, a pawn shop. Uh, it really uh, needs to be for really emergencies and you know necessary. So that's why I always put in the thousand dollar minimum, but the, the one loan outstanding at a time. You have seven to ten loans. There were, we, we've had plan sponsors. I've seen it where they have unlimited loans, and plan participant has seven to ten loans outstanding. And for a TPA and or record keeper to juggle that amount of loans to make sure that they're all paid off, one loan is easier to track than seven to ten. And so a lot of the time you will see errors, and you know that's that that's the issue. Um, and again. Um, by offering a loan program, to me, it's 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 just necessary for uh, people who need money. Uh, and again, if they really need money, it should be a thousand dollar minimum. Uh, I've seen too many places where people are taking five hundred dollar loans and paying a fifty dollar fee or paying a seventy five dollar fee, and it's nonsense. Last but not least, hardship distributions. Uh, you know, again, I know that. Uh, they change the regs where plan participants can just say, you know, I need a hardship. I meet the criteria. You can rely on it. I think that that's a recipe for disaster. I still have plan sponsors who vet all the statements and, and all of the um, paperwork. Um, and the reason I still have plan sponsors do that uh, it's a knowledge test because, again, it's an argument to be said um, that it's okay, you know, the regs say it's okay to rely on a plan participant's pledge that they made the hardship requirement unless the plan sponsor has knowledge. And so if a plan sponsor ever got audited and it turns out the you know, guy took out multiple hardships the reasons were nonsensical. I just had to reject somebody who wanted to go to astrology school. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, that's not post-secondary information for me. A trade school would have been. I don't think astrology is trade, but that's that's me. Um, but, you know, again, if a plan sponsor ever got audited, uh, there'd be a debate whether the plan sponsor had knowledge, whether the uh, hardship request was uh, bona fide or not. So I still have most plan sponsors who, you know, ask me to vet the hardship distributions. They still request paperwork from their plan uh, participants. Um, and again, um, I, you, you get so many crazy hardship distributions over the years. I got a hardship request from somebody in jail uh, who just wanted to access the money. I want to say it was on prison stationary, but I'm not 100% sure. You get odd requests all the time. Distribution... Um, Distributions are, are, are 
you know, are interesting. I mean, I've had two situations in the past where a beneficiary murdered a plant participant. And uh, my opinion, you know, is that somebody should not benefit. It's the same thing with life insurance. You don't, as a beneficiary of life insurance policy, you're not going to get paid out. You killed the insured, uh, the insured life. Uh, so it's public policy. I don't allow that. Uh, I'm sure somebody would try to fight that in court. Uh, nobody has. But hardship distributions, again, minimum, minimum hardship distribution of 1,000, in my opinion. Uh, it's just uh, It's just a headache. Um, and again, I, I think that a plan sponsor still should vet uh, because uh, plan sponsors don't want to be imputed knowledge that they don't have. And again, I'm always worried about uh, IRS audits. Um, so that's why I still don't buy that reg that like you, you just rely on the participant. But uh, that uh, that's it for this episode of F1K Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And of course... Uh, please go to that 4 site.com for further information on all our live events, including Seattle and Charlotte. Um, thanks. Uh, hope you tune in next week. Take care.